Alvina Johnson lives in a small house on Jefferson Street. She lived in the same house for 50 years. The house is immaculate, inside and out, immaculate. Though the furniture, the carpet, and even the wallpaper, they're 50 years old, you would never know it. Alvina keeps everything neat and impeccable, except maybe that little small area of the carpet that's been faded by the afternoon sun that she can't keep out. You know, even Alvina can't control everything. Her small front lawn is neat and tidy, weed-free. Each blade of grass stands up straight, perfect. On each side are the steps coming out of her front door, standing at attention right at the foundation of the house. Alvina plants a row of marigolds, 14 on each side. A sidewalk leads directly to the front steps and divides the yard exactly in half. Squarely in the middle of every half, there is a tire that has been painted white. And in each tire, a planter, there are seven marigolds, six in a circle and one in the center. It has always been this way at Alvina's house, this yard, as long as anyone can remember. And the entire yard is encircled by a white picket fence exactly three feet high. One evening after dark in October, one of the neighbors was coming home from Bible study at the church down Jefferson Street, and the neighbor passed Alvina's house. It was too dark to appreciate the careful ordering of the yard. But it was not too dark to notice the figure moving about the yard in the shadows cast by the evening's moon. The silhouette was bending over as if looking for something on the ground. And then the silhouetted figure stood up, lifted a half-bushel basket, and walked toward the fence separating Alvina's yard from the family next door, the London's. And the person then dumped the contents of the basket over the fence into the neighbor's yard. After a moment, the neighbor, walking down the street, recognized the figure as she shook the leaves out of the basket. It was Alvina. With some hesitation, the man went over to the fence and said, Alvina, you're working late tonight. Alvina put down the basket and removed her gardening gloves, and she responded, Well, it's October, and snow's going to be here soon. You've got to get the leaves cleaned up when you can. Then the neighbor looked pointedly at the pile of leaves on the London side of the fence. It was obviously so odd, even for Alvina, to be raking leaves so late at night. It was even more odd that she was dumping them in the neighbor's yard. They are the London's leaves, Alvina said. (laughs) The leaves came off the big oak tree in their yard. She pointed an accusatory finger at the red oak in the front of their house. The slightest breeze from the west, she says, half of them blow onto my property. 
I know they belong to them because I've only one maple in the back of my house. Their leaves are the ones falling on my yard, so I put them back in their yard. It's only fair, she says. Well, because it's getting late, Alvina Johnson was, and she was only defending her actions because Alvina was advocating for her kind of justice and all the people on Jefferson Street were already well into their houses for the night. So the passing neighbor gave a puzzled look and nodded his head and said, Good night, Miss Johnson. As it turned out, Alvina's neighbor Mr. London woke up the next morning, picked up all the leaves, and dumped them back into Alvina's yard. (laughs) So this led to the long debate around the neighborhood about whose leaves were whose, and about property, and about what to do, and what was fair. What's fair? Alvina tried to get everyone on the street and around town to support her legal opinion. She even complained to Billy Hobart, the police chief, but... He told her that there were really no laws about whose leaves were whose. He said, everyone has sort of raked their own leaves and not worried about where the leaves came from. But to Alvina, it seemed patently unfair that she, who had only a small yard, should have to clean up the mess from other people's trees. There was simply no doubt in Alvina's mind that the cosmos was governed by some ultimate ethic about what was fair. That story comes from Michael Linval. It's in a book called Good News from North Haven. It's a good story because it invites us to think about ourselves in new ways. You know what? Most of us are not really good at seeing ourselves as we really are. And there are lots of warnings in the Bible about that. Not seeing yourself or how you really are. The little story about Alvina shows us how quickly and how deep we can get into certain issues. Alvina cares about fairness. Fairness is good. But fairness is not the end of all wisdom. Fairness is important. But if we only worry about what is fair, well, we might actually miss out on what is faithful or what is preferable or what is even more important. We've been looking at the Beatitudes in recent weeks. Today we have two more Beatitudes. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. This is the word of the Lord. Jesus has been teaching, and Jesus will continue to teach us about what God cares most about, what God loves, what God intends for the lives of God's people. And Jesus' main message is not about what's fair. And Jesus' main message is not about what's legal. Jesus' main message is even not about what is most moral. Jesus' main message is about being embraced by and embracing that which is of God, that which is eternal, that which gives life and actually transforms life. 
unlike any of the other Beatitudes that we've been thinking about, this one about mercy is reflexive. The poor in spirit receive the kingdom. We heard that. The meek inherit the earth. We heard that. Those who mourn are comforted. We've talked about that. Yet those who show mercy receive exactly what showed or shown. Mercy. The blessings of mercy. The reward of mercy is, well, mercy. Mercy. So we're not thinking much about mercy if we're mostly thinking about what's fair. We're not thinking much about mercy if we're thinking mostly about ourselves and our yard and our property and our rights and about what is working around me. Yet Jesus wants us to think about mercy and lots of other things. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. He says. So just what is mercy? What is it? The Greek word elios suggests a pouring out. The way we pour out a water into the basin there. The way we pour out a flask of oil. The way we pour out anything that might be something precious and valuable. Mercy is a pouring out. And the outpouring involves compassion. And the outpouring involves concern. And the outpouring involves sympathy. And the outpouring involves pity. Showing mercy is taking something precious and unscrewing the cap and pouring it on somebody else. It becomes a healing balm. That's the intention. It becomes a helpful, life-giving moment of grace. That's the intention. And here's what we all know, if we're honest. Here's what we know. Mercy has seemingly evaporated from the landscape of our culture. I think the very idea of mercy makes people nervous because we expect people to pay. We expect people to even suffer for the things that they've done, not receive mercy, I think the very idea of showing mercy might make us appear weak or something. It lets people off the hook too easily. We fear that mercy leads to the breakdown of what's fair and what's right. Mercy is like forgiveness. It uh, messes with the proper equations that we think govern life the best. If we're merciful, things are going to get out of sync. Justice doesn't work if mercy is too prevalent. Society becomes vulnerable and teeters on the brink. Who deserves mercy, we ask? Uh, People need to be held accountable. Or we say, someone has to take the blame for this. That's how we think. That's how we function. And yet, according to Jesus, if we're hesitant to show mercy, then we're not going to be very good at receiving mercy. It's reflexive, remember. They go together, showing mercy and receiving mercy. They go together. Actually, Jesus keeps pushing us to some other place from where we too often find ourselves. 
Jesus keeps asking us to go to what could be from what is. And he's talking about mercy. Pour mercy over others and you will receive mercy. Forgive and you will be forgiven, he says in another place. Justice is important, but so is mercy, he says again and again. Indeed, in the Gospel of Matthew, where there are lots of references to laws and justice and what's right, Jesus in Matthew makes the case that to be moral means to be merciful. Morality in Matthew is not following rules, but having a heart, showing mercy. Twice in this very gospel, Jesus cites the prophet Hosea. I want mercy, says Hosea, and says Jesus, not sacrifice. What Jesus urges is not a piety that's about following rules and arguing about what is fair, like Alvina Johnson. Jesus urges a piety that shows boundless mercy poured on one another. What Jesus asks is not harsh attention to morals, but expansive tenderness. We don't just live by rules, as important as rules are. We live by showing mercy. The test of our obedience is not whether we are morally tougher, but whether we are humanely tenderer, more tender, more tender. It's not generally part of our growth. It's not generally part of our training to nurture mercy, to nurture tenderness. How do you even teach tenderness? We school ourselves in taking care of ourselves. We school ourselves in finding our way. We school ourselves in climbing and doing and succeeding. Jesus wants us to nurture tenderness, mercy. This is something that we need to work on and keep working on. Jesus says, blessed are those who really care about others, who stop talking and listen who understand and stand under. That's the actual meaning of compassion. People who stand under and uphold someone else. This is what Jesus is asking us to stand under each other with our strength and cover them with our tenderness. Jesus says, blessed are those whose lives seek to strengthen and support others. Blessed are those who pour out mercy, who pour out compassion, who pour out tender care. All of these beatitudes, they are just one after another trying to help us find God. One after another, they're just layer after layer, trying to help us see God, sense God in our midst. The next beatitude reminds us that the pure in heart will indeed see God. You think Alvina Johnson is pure in heart? Sneaking around, dumping leaves on her neighbor's yard at night? It's so easy to see. Pure in heart? Alvina sees her perfect yard. And she sees mostly the leaves from their tree. Alvina sees the cover of darkness. Alvina thinks about how things might, might be fair. What about seeing God? What about seeing God? Will she see God like that? In what ways? And where in our lives 
do we look like and act like Alvina Johnson? Think about that. We're pretty clear about justice in the ways that we want to define justice. We're pretty clear about what's fair, especially when it suits our sense of fairness. Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart. They will see God. All through the scriptures, uh, the heart Ginger talked about it already. The heart is not just a pulsating organ in the center of the chest that needs a good exercise regularly and a better diet and all the tools that our cardiologists can come up with. The heart is much more than that in the Scriptures. The heart, according to the Bible, is the part of us that feels, the part of us that grieves, the part of us that delights, the part of us that desires. The heart is the seat of our imagination. The heart doesn't just pump blood through us. The heart is the thing that helps us make connections, make decisions, important decisions, like what do we do in life, or who do we love, and how are we going to carry that out, and how best can we function. We understand this. We talk like this when we say, listen to your heart. We know what that means. That's lining up with the biblical understanding of heart. It's not just an organ. It's way more than that. It's what helps us listen and connect and nurture. And the Bible wants us full of compassion in our hearts and hearts full of tenderness and hearts full of faithfulness and integrity. And hearts that are growing and expanding to all people. Then we'll see God. That's what this says. Then we'll see God in our midst when our hearts are full of compassion and integrity and openness and connections and love. Then we will see God. Wow. We'll see God. On Friday of this week, I went to the hospital, St. Mary's, expecting to see several members of our church. Several people were in the same hospital experiencing medical challenges. I had a long visit with the first member, Martha Maybe. She was on the fourth floor. She had some complications. She's now home and doing better. Then I went to the next room on the next floor, Pat Thompson who had entered the hospital the previous evening. When I walked into the room, Pat's family was around the bed, and Pat had died a few minutes before I got there. Though Pat was 89, it seemed all so sudden. Pat was in church last Sunday, along with her sister, Judy Sutherland. Here's another reminder Life can be so full and wonderful. Life can be so complicated and so beautiful. And life can be so short. But then, with these beatitudes for today, Pat's life began to take a different light. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, 
for they will see God. I first encountered Pat Thompson 30 years ago when I was a student at Union Seminary. Pat Thompson was the executive assistant to the president of the seminary. Everyone knew Pat. And what we knew about Pat was her extreme beauty. Beauty that was shown and revealed in her gracious, loving, caring, kind, and merciful way. She lived every day within her family, within her church family, where she served as a faithful member, an elder, a deacon, on various committees, even search committees in this church. She lived every day pouring love and mercy from her heart onto others, onto others, from her life to the whole world. All of us, if we knew Pat, we experienced it. In fact, everyone who knew Pat talks about Pat constantly in this way. Steady, gracious, gentle, loving, nurturing, caring. She was firm in her faith. She knew God and what God calls us to be about. But she also knew about God's call to be merciful and pure with our faithfulness, full of compassion, full of love, tending to others. Along the 89 years of Pat's life, she nurtured so very well that tenderness. She grew it. That loving compassion, that mercy, that faithfulness that God asks from all of us. All of us. Clearly, she had a sense of God and God's presence. Clearly, she saw God and served God. We are on a search for God, all of us. We're seeking to sense God and see God in our midst. Jesus says, blessed are the merciful. They will receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart. They will see God. May it be so. Hallelujah. Amen. Let us pray. We believe, O God, we do. Help our unbelief. And by your Spirit, fill us and mold us in the ways of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.